the most powerful tool that every single human being has to overcome blind spots is humility. There is no other tool. Humility is an internal willingness to grow and to learn and to admit that you don't know stuff. And that's a very insecure place to be. But it's also one of the places of greatest power because from a position of humility, you can actually overcome the influence, the boundaries, the barriers, and the habits of your mind. But without it, there's no hope. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. Today, we dive deep into hat number seven, the hat of the seeker, the spiritual hat, and hat number four, the hat of the entrepreneur, as I interview my guest, Atma, my spiritual teacher and mentor. We will discuss his incredible journey from a heavy metal musician to a successful yoga teacher to creating a new ecosystem for entrepreneurs to improve the way we invest in and build startups, and it's called Startup Ecology. Atma is a psychological profiling, digital marketing, and product management expert, a Sanskrit theorist, an author, and a friend. I can't tell you how many gold nuggets are sprinkled through this episode as Atma and I discuss spiritual entrepreneurialism, the boundaries of your mind, self-awareness, the destructive nature of the ego to the entrepreneur, and how humility saves the day. I can go on and on. You don't want to miss this episode, so let's get going. So you had an interesting past. You went from a rock and roll star, music and event manager, to a yoga teacher, and then transitioned to now being a startup mentor and advisor to entrepreneurs with Project Startup Ecology. So tell us a bit about how that transition uh, materialized. Because these are all unique roles. <laughs> yeah, it's a little unusual. I, for me, honestly, in retrospect, it really does look like I've been on a, on a boat ride. I really was down the, a river, a, a very purposeful and meaningful river for me, in which everything makes sense and connects. But I had been at the University of Minnesota, and I was doing graduate studies in cognitive psychology and, and educational psychology. And really, my my career track was academia. I was just you know, going to be a professor. And, but then I got a wild idea that I wanted to do music. I loved young people and I loved the, the, had this powerful desire to share with people. And I thought, you know, I wish somebody put out a band that would tell them about like what's going on in reality. I wanted to be the band that I wish I had encountered when I was 17. So I, I had a concept, but it was really a California, LA concept, not a Minneapolis concept. So I moved to Los Angeles and I started the band. And it was because my music was very heavy. I'm a pretty good front man. I'm not a singer, but the music was very heavy. If you remember the bands like Ministry and Pantera, it was like that. 
And the name of the band was actually Justifiable Homicide. You can still actually hear the music. It's very heavy metal on, uh, on SoundCloud. Uh, so I, we did this industrial sound, and, but I did get to play all the clubs in LA. We played all over the city for three years. We had so much fun and I met so many people and, and, and I was also doing events to try and help inspire youth. So this was like activism in the, in the, in the 90s. And we were trying to get people excited about anti-racism and anti-sexism and anti-classism and understanding you have to, how you have to break free of the influence of the corporate theocracy. And I had a lot of other bands that would help me. Uh, Rage Against the Machine, System of the Down. We played shows with them. Like All these bands that were huge were really supportive of me and they helped me. And so we had a really good time. But it finally came to an end and we just sort of ran out of speed or energy and I had to get work. And I think there was a girl involved that might have created a problem. But I had to go back to work. The tech industry in the 90s was going through a very big change and I somehow got caught up in it. You know, I was working at, uh, with startups and also with big, you know, big companies like Rational Software. And, and I got really excited about the possibility. And one startup, I don't think we even called them startups then, but they hired me to actually figure out how do we build our startup and make it grow? Because there's only, we're just like three engineers. And I'm like, it was a perennial, it was going to be the perennial problem, but it was a really novel problem back then because this wasn't like not common yet. Startups weren't common in the nineties. And so I spent like a year with them and I really got it like into the nuts and bolts of everything that was going on. And I said, look, here's the deal. You're going to need a completely different model. You can't use the old pyramid. Like it's not going to work. You don't have, you know, you're not a big money, big capital organization. You need to attract people. You're going to need a totally flat hierarchy. You're going to need a very, you know, distributed uh, labor force that's very cross-disciplinary. And I was explaining all these things. And I spent months and months researching and helping them figure out how to do it. And at the end, they were like, are you kidding? This is crazy stuff. It really was. In 1998, it was crazy stuff. So I said, okay, no problem. And they said, no, nah, we're not going to do it. And they let me go. So now I'm just sitting there with nothing to do for about a minute. And my mom calls me in that same week. And she says, hey, I have a plane ticket for you to go to India. There's a guru there that I've been that I studied with because my mother is a yoga teacher and I grew up around yogis and swamis since I was a little kid. So she really wanted me to reconnect to my roots. So she sends me to India and I'm there for six weeks. And the adventures I had there were cataclysmically, cosmically weird and amazing. I've never even told anybody half the stories of what happened on that trip. It was weird. I freaked out the yogis and swamis there. It was just a whole thing. It was a lot of fun. And I thought it was no big deal. I was like, oh, this happened because I was in India and I'm going to go back to LA and it'll be all normal again. But I got back to LA and nothing was normal. And I'm like, I can't go back to work. And I asked my family to help me. So I just lived in a room in Santa Monica. It was like $400 a month. And my family gave me like the money just to live. And all I did was pay rent and eat. And all I did was meditate like eight, 10 hours a day for a year. I was, that was just my life. And then after that, I was like, you know, I need to do something. You know, it's time. I mean, I was trying to figure it out. Maybe I'm supposed to go back to India. I was really thinking, should I go be a Swami in India? I, was, I didn't know. And then my, the, the, the answer that I got was, no, I'm going to open up a yoga studio in, in Santa Monica. So I called my mom, who had already retired from family life and was living in an ashram in Pennsylvania. I said, mom, I'm going to come get you and bring you to LA. We're going to open up a yoga studio. So I went and got my mom. We came to LA. I opened up a yoga studio in Santa Monica. And, you know, I invited everybody. I go, this is going to be an ecumenical, like, 
you know, universal yoga experience. So I invited the Kundalini yogis. I invited the, the Bhakti yogis. I invited every, every kind of yogi. There is the Hatha yogis. The, everybody was welcome. And that's, that's, so we had so many different disciplines there. And that's how I ended up meeting the Krishna yogis. And, and also because they had really good food over at their place on the block. So, so I really loved the, the food. And um, I just was friends with everybody in the yoga community. That's how I met Dr. Narayan Singh who later went back to his name, Dr. Michael Lincoln. But um, he was this American psychologist from the 60s and the 70s who had discovered a thing called face reading. And he never had been able to get his work published in peer-reviewed articles, but he'd written probably 15 manuals on it and dozens and dozens of papers. And I ended up getting to be, through a strange twist of events, his, his apprentice. And I studied with him for years, I think eight, 10 years. And he stayed with me when he came to Los Angeles. And so that's how I ended up becoming this sort of master profiler because I learned everything he had to teach. And actually he gave it over to me, the responsibility of training others and teaching it. So that's when I met you. Let's transition a little bit into questions regarding what a spiritual entrepreneur is and a couple of other aspects to that world. When you're looking at the definition of an entrepreneur, spirituality doesn't really come to play. That's a great question. And my definition of a spiritual entrepreneur is an effective entrepreneur. So here's the thing. To be effective, to be, you know, means that you're getting traction. You know, you're making progress. You feel good about yourself. If you're not effective at something, there's a lot of misery and pain, right? If you're not an effective dog owner, there's everybody's miserable. So being effective at something is important. It's not everything, but it's important. And so I wouldn't use the word spiritual because the word spiritual is, it's not a bad word in any way, shape or form, but it's also a fat, heavy word overladen with meaning and unsubtleties. And, and that's unfortunate because it might be conflated with religion or it might be conflated with cultism or it might be conflated you know, with belief systems. And, and I don't believe that, that any of those are accurate descriptions of the word spirituality. But I'm also not in the business of reclaiming and repurposing that word. So I pretty much just leave it out of my work and I focus on it. Everything I do is about creating a spiritual entrepreneur, even though I would never say that out loud other than today, one time only. So this is your, this is your one, one shot only where I will share that concept. Other than that, when I talk to business people, I talk about, look, here's what it takes to be a successful founder, an effective founder, a meaningful founder. and Everything I teach is about being the best founder you can be, but it's inherently spiritual because a big part of what we do on, in the online school or what I do with all the work I do with when I train founders is teaching them how to have the most effective mindset. Like what it, what's the mindset of a, of a successful entrepreneur? And what I'm trying to teach them to do is to recognize their own mind as, uh, as an obstacle, as a barrier, and step aside, outside of, around, or away from their mind, and give themselves permission to flow with whatever is actually happening in a discovery state. And so, though, if you really think about what I just said, that's a very loose, that's a very spiritual concept. And because my work is rooted either in, uh, either in Western psychology or Eastern Sanskrit theory, 
upshot is going to be that it's a very spiritual, self-aware, self-awakening, self-discovery process. It's the journey of self-discovery. If we think about the Sanskrit texts, one of the most famous ones is the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. So a big part of what we think about as yoga in the modern era, or especially what we think about as meditation, comes from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And in one of the very, the very second verse, actually, of that text is Yogashchitivriti Narodha, which is, in Sanskrit, says yoga is the overcoming of the habits of the mind. And then the next verse says, so that you can understand who you really are. So an entrepreneur has to overcome the habits of the mind because though that is what's going to knock them down every single time. You're not, as an entrepreneur, going to succeed because you have the right idea or the right plan. You're not. That's not how it works. Whatever idea you have may or may not be good. And whatever plan you have is definitely going to get squashed and changed and rewritten over and over and over. And if you don't want to live a life of pain and frustration, then you have to be flexible and adapt and move and pivot and grow and evolve and learn every step of the way so that you can make decisions based on what's actually going on in front of you. And that is the very definition of the discovery process, but that means you have to overcome the habits of your mind. So one of the places where I always begin working with founders is to talk about bias what you know you don't know, and what you don't know you don't know. Because these are really important things. And what you don't know you don't know is going to kill you in the end, because that's what's all back here in your blind spots. And that's what's going to trip you up. But you can't recognize it because you don't know it's there. So the most powerful tool that every single human being has to overcome blind spots, and actually in some ways probably the only tool you have, is humility. There is no other tool. And I'm not talking about, oh, humility is some kind of obsequiousness. Humility is not an external state of mind. Humility is an internal willingness to grow and to learn and to admit like that you don't know stuff. It's the embracing of what I don't know, I don't know. And that's a very insecure feeling place to be. But it's also one of the places of greatest power because from a position of humility, you can actually overcome the influence the boundaries, the barriers, and the habits of your mind. But without it, there's no hope. So when I meet founders who are very egotistically, absolutely focused on their vision and their idea, and they know what they're doing, and I like just look at them and I smile and I say, great, good luck. I'm, I can't, I'm not going to be able to help you. So maybe instead of spiritual entrepreneur, looking at it as a religion or a spiritual identification, Maybe a spiritual entrepreneur, as you said, is an entrepreneur with a spiritual mindset, which means you take all of the mindsets from all of the different religions and spiritual practices, which actually are the same, in a sense, if you break it down, the character mindset, the emotional states of what makes someone religious, spiritual, in all the books for the last six, 7,000 years. Has always been, like you said, humility, you know, love, light, compassion, forgiveness, all of these amazing emotional attributes. Maybe that's what a spiritual entrepreneur needs to adapt and not identify with the dogma portion of it, but really take in the best of what these great teachers have been teaching us over the last thou- you know, few thousand years. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Again, you're correct. 
the the issue is not spirituality. The issue is that it's conflated with religion and belief. And religion and belief are are irrational concepts against which there is no argument. It's just simply whatever you choose to believe. And to whatever that benefits people, that's just how we've evolved. But I don't think that beliefs are of much value to the entrepreneur, to the scientist, to the artist, right? To the creator, because that's just committing to what you know and being very opposed to what you don't know, you don't know. The whole sector of knowledge of the things you don't know, you don't know is anathema to religionists and beliefists because. I mean, that's the whole point to religion and belief is I don't have to deal with the unknown. And there's even a fourth quadrant, right? Everything's in quadrants, right? So there's what you know in one quadrant, what you know you don't know. So these are easy, right? I know face reading. I'm really good at it. I do not know how to fly an airplane, but I know I don't know how to fly an airplane. Then down here in this quadrant, there's all these things that I don't know that I don't know which leaves the fourth quadrant, which is there are things that I don't know that I, that I know. And that's sort of a magical realm. But all of the ideas that tend to get attached or conflated with spirituality go against like really embracing the unknown, embracing the uncontrollable parts of life. But the majority of life is uncontrollable. And the majority of what's going to go on around you is unknowable. And so you need to embrace that in order to be free and empowered. And so what I'm looking for in a founder is the mindset of somebody who really is so willing to be free, to be empowered. And that takes humility. And humility is, again, here's the thing I, you have to, everybody should always remember about humility. You're only practicing it if it's hard or difficult. Humility will never be fun or easy because it is inherently against your ego or identity or self-interest to be humble. It goes against your mind. Your mind is not a humble thing. Your mind is the opposite of a humble thing. So humility, will you will always know if you're being humble because it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. It's painful. It's something. If, if you think it's easy, you're, you're not being humble. That is so profound. I can't wait for the seven hatters to just play this back over and over again because you just hit a nerve. For me, I had chills because Literally, my next question was, how does ego come into play with entrepreneurship? And humility and ego are completely opposite of each other, especially vulnerability, humility, and ego. So you see entrepreneurs all the time. How does ego play in entrepreneurship? Is it a problem? And if so, what do we do about it? What's, what's one or two things that, you know, that an entrepreneur can do to at least become aware, right? Because that's the first step, become aware of the problem. And what could they do to fix it if they can't? Wow. Well, I'm going to tell you straight up that, you know, and I think you know it because you're asking it, but this might generally be one of the most difficult questions that, you know, there is to answer. But you've also answered it inside of the question and the way you frame the question, you actually put the answer into it. Ego is not a very difficult concept. I know it's a fuzzy word that has lots of different connotations and different perspectives that, and frameworks for looking at it. Ultimately, you're just talking about your sense of I, identity. It's wonderful. In Sanskrit, the word for ego is ahamkara. And that is literally, if you translated it back into English, it wouldn't be ego. The word ahamkara means 
that which makes me an I. It is the I maker. So whatever gives me a sense of identity, right? Like, oh, this is my iPhone. This is my laptop. That's my girlfriend. That's my dog. My name is, I live here. I was born there. And it goes on and on and on, and both positive and negative. That is not my house, but this is my house. That is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So everything that creates your sense of identity. And some of these things are terribly, terribly important to us. And some of them aren't important to me. It's not important to me that that's not my house. It's very important to me that that's my dog, right? That's a very powerful part of my identity. So the trick is to recognize uh, at the end of the day, ego is a habit of the mind. It's just a habit. It's just a way of experiencing reality. And it's a valuable way. It's not a worthless, oh, I got to get rid of it. You can't survive in the world without any sense of identity because you wouldn't eat. You'd walk into the street and get killed. You, you know what I mean? You, you can't live without a sense of identity. What you can do is change your relationship with your sense of identity. Recognize that your ego is a product of your mind. It's just how your mind creates your way of being in the, in the matrix, in the world, in the universe. But it's not you. And that's where the problem lies. We conflate ourselves and our egos. We just assume it, we're the same thing. But that's just an assumption that we made a long time ago unnecessarily. We're not our egos. We're not our minds. And our mind's not our best friend. Our mind is actually actively working to hold us down. Not because it doesn't like us, not because it doesn't care for us, but actually quite the opposite. It thinks only about how to protect itself. You know, think about it like if you hired somebody to be your bodyguard, then all they would do is like run around trying to protect you, which is okay if you're doing something dangerous, but it could be really a big problem if they stop letting you go out, stop letting you do what you want. Ask Britney Spears what that's like, right? <laughs> you know, we just learned about how that can go really wrong when somebody doesn't give you permission to be you, when somebody doesn't give you permission to step outside of yourself, when somebody doesn't give you permission to be wrong and explore life and to make mistakes, that's our ego. It's an out of control bodyguard that's trying to protect us from everything at all costs. And that's where it has become counterproductive. So you got to say, wait, what if I'm not my ego? What if I'm not my mind? What if I'm separate from that? The fastest way to do that is always going to be humility because it's the only thing your ego can't reclaim. If you say anything else, your ego is going to reclaim it. If you say, you know what, I'm going to go just be a beggar in the street. Your ego is going to say, man, I am the best beggar in the whole. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is now who I am. It's my identity. There's nothing your ego or mind won't reclaim and use against you, except for humility. You know, if you go, hey, my mind is lying and cheating me and, and I think I'm my mind and that's made me a liar and a cheater. It's the reflection that you see in the mirror that's humility. If you recognize that reflection as somebody who is either lying or cheating or deceiving or distracting, somebody who's going out of their way to keep you in a box, and you look in the mirror, you go, look, that's my ego. All it wants to do is hold me back. And all I've done is become a victim to that. And when you say that and you recognize that, that's where the freedom, that's where the power comes back. You're like, yeah, I've been a victim to you. You lied and cheated and tried to protect me and I became a liar and cheater, right? You told me that if I was always right, then, then I would be a good person. 
But all that got me was to make everybody else wrong and to make all my relationships miserable. But you told me I needed to be right. You told me, but I don't have to be right. You lied to me, mind. You cheated me. You told me that the most important thing was to be right. But what if the most important thing is to inspire people and fuck being right? And now where's your mind going to go? Your mind has nowhere to go. Absolutely. And then you just have to be careful that when you're humble, if you can get there, you're not humble for egoic reasons because you can be pretending to be humble. Real humility comes from introspection, from silence, coming from the soul. Yeah. And really it's painful, but it's not hard. And there's a difference because painful is hard. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. Nobody wants to say, you know what? I've been pretending to be a really good guy, but the truth is I'm scared of everything. And I'm scared of failing and I'm scared of being rejected and I'm scared of of looking stupid. So all I'm doing is pretending to be happy and smart and clever. But the reality is I'm absolutely scared out of my mind. That is for me to say that, because that's true about me, that's humility because that's hard. It's painful to say that. But the minute I say that, I can turn everything around. I can recognize what I said a moment ago, which are, what are the consequences? Consequences, I'm pushing everybody away. I'm living my worst life. I'm not free to explore. I'm not a real visionary. I'm, I'm addicted to one vision, whatever. And I'm going to lose out. I'm going to push people away. I'm going to miss out. But now you know what? Now I can use my ego for my benefit. I can say, you know what? Ego is who I am. I am what I say I am. And if I stop pretending and start being honest, I have the freedom to choose. So I choose to be charismatic. I choose to be empowering. I choose to be inspirational. I choose to be happy. I choose to be loving. I choose to be kind. I choose courage. Here's the thing. We can't go from where we are right now to being these pure, perfectly enlightened pods that have no that are completely unattached to all material things. That's not a reasonable leap. That's not a journey any of us are going to make. We're here. We're stuck here. We're in a physical body. We have a mind. We have relationships. So we have to decide how we're going to be here. And in the Sanskrit texts, the whole Bhagavad Gita is this story all about teaching Arjun that you have to decide who you're going to be. Nothing else really matters. Like you made up all these stories in your head. You're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to do war. War is horrible. And I don't, he's like, you're making up a story in your head about what is and what isn't. All of that is, this is what that all of whatever is not under your control just is. You can decide right now, who do you want to be? And, and so Krishna taught Arjun the painful lesson of what it means to be humble and then said, now you choose. And he said, yeah, I'm going to be a warrior. I'm going to fight fearlessly. And, and that's the thing about the seven hatters and the seven hats. Entrepreneurs in general will pretend to be someone they're not. The problem is there's no community of entrepreneurs who are honest with each other and talk about the shit that really they go through every single day. Because there is no path to entrepreneurship that's an easy journey. And everybody wants to just say, hey, I'm good. I'm good, but they're really not. They're having issues with their family. They're having issues with their kids. They're having issues with their mind. 70% of entrepreneurs have mental you know, issues, according to the latest surveys, especially during COVID. 
they all want to hit it like Mark Zuckerberg in three years, and they don't understand how much of an arduous journey it is for them to get to a certain existence and, and a certain uh, opportunity that they can manifest. So we need to change that. And I think that's what the seven hats is about, is about honesty. It's about finding humility. And I love the fact that we spoke about it. So, so that leads us to the final segment of the show. Um, I can speak with you for days, but let's talk about what you actually do now. You created this ecosystem that improves the way entrepreneurs invest and build startups. It's called uh, Startup Ecology. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, sure, absolutely. So if you build on the things we were talking about, we talked about mindset, and we talked about the importance of being able to operate in a discovery state. So not being attached really to anything. Like one of the things I remind people that being a visionary is not about having a vision. Visionary isn't a person with a big vision. A visionary is a person who could fill up a hundred whiteboards with a vision, with a hundred visions every day. That's a visionary, somebody whose mind is absolutely open and willing to discover a completely new way to get from where we are now to whatever problem or solution or offering they, they believe that public might want. That's why I'm so not a big fan of like, oh, it's all about the idea or it's all about the execution or it's all about the plan. It's not about any of those things. None of those things will get you what you want in life. It's going to be about your ability to discover the way from where you are to where you'd like to be. And where you want to be, I'm assuming, is a place of creating meaning for users. We used to talk about value, but what we're really looking for is how do you create meaning? How do you, what is meaning in life? And how does your product or service do that for users? And can I do that at scale so that you know I can create jobs, support people, make money? So if that's what you want to do, you have a black box in front of you because there's no way to predict ahead of time what users are going to commit to, what they're going to be excited about, why that product. Just because you understand the value of a product and you, it creates meaning for you has nothing to do with whether or not that will create meaning for millions of people. And so the biggest mistake is, oh, well, you know, I really believe in this. I just have to stick to what I believe. And I'm like, no, you don't. You have to really pay attention to what makes what's meaningful to the user. And find your path to that. And the way to do that is the state of discovery. The way to get through a black box, which is a place you, where you can't see the process, you can't plan your way through a black box. You're literally blind in there, right? So the way you do that is by iterative learning. You discover. You go, okay, well, for one week or two weeks, we're going to do this. And then at the end of two weeks, we'll see what we learned and we'll make a new set of decisions and go in that direction or another direction or whatever we learn. That's pretty frustrating for some people because like, no, I want a roadmap and a plan and milestones. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can have that. That's not how it's going to work out in reality. So why don't you drop what's not going to work and just come right back and get into a discovery mode? So that's the black box. Now, the next part of it is, okay, well, let's say I'm an investor and I'm like, I'm, a, I'm a, okay, I'm a, co I'm a founder and I get what you're saying, Mr. Atma, that makes sense. All right. Yeah, and I, I like I like Agile and Scrum, and I guess I can see how I could apply that to my marketing and my sales and everything else. And we can go week by week and learn and adapt. I'm like, great, thanks for that. But let's say you're an investor, and you're like, well, now you want to put money into startups. You want to fund. You want to be a seed funder, right? You want to give early stage startups money because that's really where the huge scale of investment return is, right? The 10x to 100x. If you're somehow lucky enough to pick one of these companies that just explodes, 
But chances are you're not, it's not going to happen because 95% of these companies are never going to go anywhere. Those are really bad odds. So you're once again looking at a black box, but investors are very committed to the idea that they're smarter than the black box. So I can pick out, I'll, I'll have them audition, I'll have them apply, I'll pick them out, and then I'll get the winners. And that doesn't happen. It might happen for a couple people, but that's not the norm. So startup ecology is solving for that problem. How do you overcome the fact that we really are never going to be able to predict who is going to be the next billion dollar, who's going to be the next unicorn? You know, it's, it's, if, if, the more you dig into it, the more you realize that the unpredictability of this is through the roof, right? And that the likelihood of success is somewhere in the one, two, or 3%. Those are really bad odds. So uh, instead of working with those kind of odds, I said, well, what if we take the problem with those odds is that they're directly correlated to human decision-making. Everybody thinks that, oh, we're going to have, uh, we're going to bring people in, we're going to let them pitch, we're going to have pitch events, then we're going to pick the best ones, and we're going to give them some money, and then we're going to fund them, and there'll be another round of demo nights and pitch events and blah, blah, blah. And, and we'll pick the right ones, right? But they don't. The majority still fail. So how do we take the human guesswork out of it? That's what I built. I built a black box fund that uses a completely different approach, right? So by relying on psychological milestones and completely different types of metrics, we open the funnel to everybody. Any startup in the world can come in and they start at the school. They go through the school and it basically teaches the fundamentals of mindset and how to talk about and think about and present your project. And then somebody actually looks at that and says, well, this is what it needs. This is what it's missing. You know, you get support there. But eventually, if it's good enough, then you're invited into the second stage of the funnel, which is our labs. And we developed a lab. So normally, the way it works is that if you enter an accelerator, they're like, all right, you have three months or four months or whatever it is. Usually, it was three months. And we give you mentors. And I'm like, mentors? Screw mentors. We got rid of mentors and we replaced them with marketers. You don't need a mentor. You need somebody who can actually help you find traction. Somebody giving me advice doesn't help me find users. I need actual users. Marketing is the first place where everybody fails because it's really hard and getting traction is really important. And, 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 and there's this thing I call the myth of the lean startup, right? Everybody's like, oh, this is a great book, Eric Reese's book. Well, I love the book because the concept was right, but there was a giant hole in the middle of it, which was like, how do you actually test an idea or an MVP or anything? Well, that's actually called really high-level marketing. And there's not a lot of people who can do that. You don't just learn how to do that. So they go out, they build their MVP, they test it, but they actually have no idea why it failed. Did it fail because your marketing didn't work? Because you don't know how to do that kind of marketing? Because your product wasn't good enough? So that's a huge, huge gap. And advice isn't going to get you over that. Mentorship isn't going to get you over that. So we replace mentors with marketers. And then we got rid of the artificially imposed deadline. And you're not going to launch a successful startup and be, have something meaningful in three months or six months, probably even nine months. It's going to be more like 12 months to 24 months, right? Two years is a very reasonable window for what it takes. And the issue there then becomes, well, how do you stay in the game? So part of what we do is we teach entrepreneurs how to stay in the game. You don't have to spend all your money up front. Because you have to find your traction. You have to wind your way through the black box. It's much better to take smaller incremental steps as you wind your way through the black box until you find your actual traction. And it's not going to happen in three months. That's nonsense. So we got rid of those deadlines. And so basically what we're doing is we're watching the entrepreneurs go through this system, systemic 
process where the milestones are more psychological than they are, you know, metric based. And we can recognize that their ability to stay in the game, to adapt, to evolve, to be in a discovery state is really what's going to make them a successful entrepreneur. Those are the ones that stay in the game and they bubble up. So basically the entire mechanism takes the human guesswork out of it and just lets the entrepreneur prove themselves. So they come through the mechanism of the funnel and they rise to the top on their own, right? Through this system that we've set up. And so on top of that, we build community and support because that's a really big part of it. You talk about it a lot with the seven adders and how they need to be community. So we build that into our program. And we actually do that through tokenomics, right? We actually have entire program is, is connected to the blockchain. We actually have two tokens and each token is backed by the equity of all the companies that are in the ecosphere. And, and it, it, it has a way of connecting everybody, making everybody interdependent, intermutual. This component has not actually happened yet. So I should say, I believe will create a strong uh, ecology of mutualism and support so and interdependencies. But that's, that's on, that hasn't actually happened yet. Because right now I'm in the middle of raising our first fund. Right. So we're raising four million dollars that allow us to put together, that allow us to launch the first 30 companies. The third stage is where we actually give you money and then you get funded. Right. So it's an average of $75,000. It's not a one size fits all. And you don't just get a check. We actually work with you and we have a kind of a process by which you gain autonomy. We're not just writing a check and then you go do what you want. You're actually adapting to the protocols and the procedures that we're setting forth. And so, yeah, you are getting like anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $125,000, but that money is being used to manage, you know, within these marketing protocols that we've established to make sure that everybody stays focused on gaining traction. You know, Peter Drucker said that you need two things to succeed in business. You need a product that people would want to purchase over and over again. And then you need to know how to market the shit out of that product. And so those two, right, coupled with the reason why entrepreneurs fail is because they either run out of time or they run out of money. So working with someone like you actually forces the entrepreneur to understand product development, understand the need quickly, iterate quickly. So they build a great product. And then with your digital marketing and product management and all the other uh, skill sets that you have, you will then allow them to market that product effectively so they don't run out of time or they don't run out of money. Atma, what a great discussion. As I said, I could speak with you for days. We can touch upon so many other subjects and topics, but I want the seven headers to know where to find you. I want them to know how they can help I believe you're looking for investors for your project for Startup Ecology. People can easily, you know, my name is Atma, A-T-M-A, and the name of the company is StartupEcology.com. It's all you need, Atma at StartupEcology.com. Anybody who wants to can send me an email anytime, A-T-M-A at StartupEcology.com. Atma, thank you so, so much. It was such a pleasure. I'm sure I'll have you on again one of these days. Good luck with everything you're doing. Uh, I'm a full supporter of yours always have been and i think you're doing great work so love you love you too man thank you all right anything i can do to help i love seven hats 
Thank you, Atma. Thank you. Bye now. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Atma. So let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. For the past decade, I've had a fascination with the term spiritual entrepreneur. You know, you don't hear the Madison Avenue marketing machine speak of this term often. And there's a reason for that. Madison Avenue is all about ego. You know, you're not good enough unless you buy my product. But on the other hand, a spiritual entrepreneur, they're complete opposite. They lead with humility and inspire others by example. And they create products and services that improve the lives of others. See, you don't have to be Gandhi or Mother Teresa, but a spiritual entrepreneur tends to lead with love and compassion. I hope this episode has ignited a spark in you to look deep within yourself and take the entrepreneurial journey with a more spiritual approach. If you contain the ego and be humble, it will certainly increase the likelihood of you achieving the impact on the world that you desire. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selig, and I tip my hat off to you. And one final note, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you got from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. And I'd love for you to weigh in on this topic. So join the Seven Hatters community on my website, the7hats.com, so we can connect off air.